Well, good morning, church family. It is sweet and good, as it always is, to be with you this morning. If you do not know me, my name is James Prendergast. I have the tremendous joy of serving our students here at Grace Church and have been doing that for two years now. In fact, I must confess this Sunday is a little bit special, even sentimental for my wife and I, as it represents our two-year anniversary here at Grace Church of the Valley. And so we are just so thankful for this church. We are so thankful for you. Thank you. Yeah. So thankful for this body and from my heart to yours. It is just a real, real joy and a privilege to be able to open up the word of God with you this morning. And so if you do have a Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, you can begin turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this morning, uh, the focus of our time is going to be spent on Paul's conclusion to that chapter, which finds us in verses 16 through 18. If you don't have a Bible on hand this morning, that's just fine. You can find one under every other seat. Go ahead and grab that copy, flip to page 966, and that'll get you to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with us. Oh, church, if you're there, what I'd like to do is read the text together, and then I'll pray, commit our morning to the Lord, and we'll see if we can't be encouraged by this incredible text in 2 Corinthians 4. Let's do that. I'll read, you listen, 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 16. God's word says this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so thankful to come together this morning as your people, as your church, to worship you, a God who is altogether worthy of our worship. Lord, you are greater than our greatest thought about you has ever endeavored to be. You are a good God. You are a holy God. And I pray that this morning as we spend a few moments in your word that you would do what you have been doing since the beginning of human history. And that is changing men and women by the power of your word. And so we ask you to do that one more time this morning. And we pray it in Christ's precious name. Amen. A vile airstrike leaves 21 dead in Ukraine. A tragedy strikes after teen takes younger siblings out to play. A seven die in Peru plane crash, final victim of Uvalde shooting buried, complete carnage, typhoon death toll surges, high school football player dies after football practice. And these are but a handful of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands 
of the heartbreaking and gut-wrenching newspaper headlines that shocked our nation just this past year. Each one serving as yet another reminder, as if we needed any more, that no matter how much time and and energy and effort and focus and awareness and money goes into reforming the world and fixing the world, the problem remains the same. The world is broken. And the effects and the consequences of sin are rampant. And of course, what is true on a national and global scale is just as much so on an individual one as well. And no doubt we could talk all morning long about global catastrophes and international tragedies, but friends, we would be naive to think that such suffering has not, cannot, and will not reach us in our own backyard, in our own families, and in our own lives. And for some of you, it has. Some of you have come to church this morning and you're, you're singing and you're giving and you're listening and you're doing so with a broken heart. And life's circumstances and sin's consequences, they are just bearing down on you in a way that is almost paralyzing. And for the rest of us, if we're not there presently, well, then we can be assured that at some point soon we will be. After all, few things are promised to us in this life, few things guaranteed, but one of them, as attested to by the Lord Jesus himself, is the presence and the experience of suffering. It is real, it is active, and it will find each of us often when we are least expecting of it. And so, church family, in light of this truth, I believe that the question of overarching significance for you and I this morning is this. How can we, as men and women who have been radically transformed by the power of the gospel, walk through this life feeling the effects of sin, recognizing the brokenness of the world, even being personally touched by the disastrous consequences of the fall, and yet say with Paul right here in 2 Corinthians 4, I will not lose heart. How do we do that? And how can we say that? Well, church, I believe it is this exact question that the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us in a mighty way. And here's how we're going to explore that answer. And we're going to do so this morning in just three simple parts with what I'm going to call three crucial ingredients to a hope-filled life in a hopeless and fleeting world. Three crucial ingredients to a hope-filled life in a hopeless and fleeting world. And here's the first one. I'm just going to say it like this. My hope arises when, number one, I recognize my present transformation. My hope arises when I recognize my present transformation. If you would, look back with me to verse 16. Verse 16, where again we find those words from the pen of the Apostle Paul, so we do not lose heart. And church, this really is Paul's thesis statement for us this morning. In fact, in many ways, 
All that Paul will go on to say and write in verses 16 through 18, it's, it's simply an explanation and a clarification upon this one point. That the Christian, and no matter the situation or circumstance, need not lose heart. That the Christian need not resort to a life of despair or despondency, no matter how bad things might get. And that is the promise of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. A promise of hopefulness in the midst of hopelessness. Now, the question quickly becomes, as we've mentioned already, well, Paul, how can you say that? Paul, how can you make such a claim? And church, it's a question that really only intensifies as we read this statement in light of its greater context. You see, the book of 2 Corinthians as a whole is a book that highlights, perhaps more so than any other Pauline epistle, the sufferings and the opposition that came against the man Paul. I mean, Paul is, is just so forthright from cover to cover in this letter concerning all that he had endured for the sake of Christ. All that he had suffered for the sake of the gospel. And friends, such is even the immediate context here in chapter 4. In fact, if you would, glance back with me to verse 8. And there in verse 8, Paul, speaking of his current predicament, says this. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and dying. Church, that is Paul's current. Uh, assessment of his life from a horizontal perspective. He is in the thick of it. He is a first-hand witness of the destructive consequences of sin. Paul is suffering mightily. Yet, as we arrive here in verse 16 at really what is the culmination of Paul's argument, and what we, we find is that far from being driven to dejection, far from being driven to despair, Paul bursts forth in doxology. So we do not lose heart. To which we ask one more time, given Paul's circumstances, how can he say that? Well, luckily for us, Paul will not leave us in suspense. Let's keep reading. And Paul continues on in verse 16, and he says this, though our outer self is wasting away. Let's just go ahead and pause it right there. And what is in reference here by the outer self? Well, very simply, the body. The body is, is what Paul has in mind. That is, that is what he is speaking of. This, this outer part of us, this physical body that is in the process, at least in his words, of, of wasting away or quite literally of decaying. A couple years back now, I got the chance to take a trip, really the trip of a lifetime, uh, with my wife to Greece. 
and it was absolutely incredible. And part of what made this trip so incredible is that a large portion of our time was spent sailing around to all these different Greek islands along the coast of the Mediterranean, and it was just stunningly beautiful. And I can still remember that one of those stops, one of the harbors that we anchored down in, was the home of this abandoned ship. And so naturally, myself and my wife and the other passengers on board, we were intrigued by this ship. And so we decided, as any other good tourist would, to grab our snorkeling gear and to swim on over to it. And church, I'll never forget that upon doing just that, swimming up to the ship and observing it both from above the water as well as below the water, that it was just this living picture of deterioration. Like this thing was straight out of a science project. I mean, it was, it was rusted through from, from the continual corrosion of the water. It was, it was completely worn out from the beating of the sun. It, it was creaky. It was messy. And slowly but surely, it was going down. And friends, it was also the exact picture that Paul is painting here in 2 Corinthians 4 of my body and of your body, of the the wasting away, of the decaying of the physical. And while some of us in this room may be more aware of this than others, amen, senior saints, and nevertheless, we're all here, are we not? All of us find ourselves this very morning in the process of dying. No one is excluded. No one is exempt. And once again, Paul knew this better than anyone. A man who was made a pinata for Jesus on more than one occasion. A man who who bore on his body, in the language of Galatians chapter 6, the marks of Christ. And so as as Paul writes concerning the reality and the certainty of our wasting away, church, he does so with an acute awareness of it. And friends, maybe some of you are there this morning. Health failing again. A bad diagnosis coming out of left field facing the inevitable consequences of life in a fallen world, leading you to ask the question, where then will I go for hope? As my body fails me, as death looms over me, how can I not lose heart? Well, Christian, Paul's got a contrast for you, and it is absolutely amazing. Let's keep going in verse 16. And he says there, though our outer self is wasting away, and now here comes our contrast, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Well, church, if the outer self was the physical, visible part of who we are, then in turn, the inner self is just the opposite. It's in reference to our, to our soul, to our heart, if you will, to that, that part of us that is unseen and undetected and yet just as real. And here, it is the, the inner self, it is the, the inner man that is said to be, don't miss this, being renewed day by day. Now, church, the first thing to notice in this all-important phrase is that this renewal is occurring in the present passive tense. Meaning, 
That this renewal, it is, it is present in that it's, it's ongoing, it's continual, it is uninterrupted. And yet it's also passive. And that this is a renewal being done unto us rather than by us. In other words, we are the, we are the recipients, we are the benefactors of this renewal, but we are not the agents of it. I know we are being renewed by an outside force that is God himself who is powerfully and consistently at work in our lives. Now the question could arise, will James tell me something about the nature of this renewal? Right, tell me, tell me what exactly is taking place here because I think for, for some of us, perhaps for many of us, oh, we're keenly aware that the outer self is wasting away. We've got that part. Right, maybe for some of us, there were some audible noises getting out of bed this morning. Anybody want to own that? Right, maybe some, some crackles and pops getting out of the car. Like, we get it. The outer self is wasting away, to which we say this morning, amen. But friends, the question for us this morning is, Paul, how is it that the inner self, that the inner man is being renewed? What does that look like and what does that entail? Well, church, let me try and give it to you in just one sentence. And here it is. The renewal that God works in the believer, in you and I, is the daily transformation from who we once were to who we're now becoming in Christ. In a word, what does this renewal look like? It looks like our sanctification. It looks like our, our messy and often imperfect growth in Christ-likeness day after day after day. One of my very favorite things about what I get to do here at Grace Church, and I tell my wife this often, is that I get a front row seat to watch as young men and young women are transformed and renewed by the power of the gospel. And so just a couple weeks back, I got to sit down over a cup of coffee with a young man who looked me in the eyes and said this. He said, James, I'm changing and I cannot explain it. My desires are different. My affections are different. I'm not who I once was. And with confidence, I got to look back across the table and tell that young man that it's because God himself is at work in your life. That is because you are in the process by divine grace of a daily renewal of soul that will go on and on and on until you see Jesus face to face. And church, can I just say this morning that such is true of you as well if you are in Christ. That despite what might be initially perceived on the outside, you are undergoing a renewal of spirit, a renewal of soul, even in this very moment that is preparing you for glory. And fascinatingly, of all the different ways that Paul could have instilled hope within us, friends, this is the first place he goes. Right? Paul could have said something like this, well, just, just wait it out, it'll get better. Or just, just be positive, smile through the pain. No, that's not what he says. And instead, as Paul looks to the brokenness of this world, as he considers the decaying of his body, he says, believers, I will not give up. I refuse to resort to hopelessness. And here's why. Because though it might not look like it, under the hood of this rusted, worn out, broken down body that I drag with me, there is a soul. There is an inner man. And that man, 
that Paul, oh, he's being renewed. He's being transformed. He's different than he was and more and more each day. Therefore, I will not lose heart. And so church, can I just encourage you this morning that if you find yourself discouraged and defeated, bordering on hopelessness and teetering on despair, can I encourage you to take your eyes off of the outer self, off of the the outer man, and instead to place them with the Apostle Paul onto the inner self, onto the, the inner man, so that In seeing and beholding the renewal that is at work, you and I might say with Paul, I will not lose heart. Why? For my God is at work within me. For my God is making me new. And if that's true, well, then I can face today and any day with an unfettered confidence that the inward transformation, oh, it is greater than the outward deterioration. Amen? Amen. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a second crucial ingredient to a hope-filled life, and it goes like this. My hope arises when, number two, I remember my future glorification. First, when I recognize my present transformation, and now secondly, when I remember my future glorification. Look back down with me to verse 17. Paul says this. It's an incredible statement. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Church, here again in verse 17, Paul brings us to a beautiful contrast. He takes us once more from the lesser to the greater, from the the earthly to the heavenly. Only here in in verse 17, this contrast, it has a future element, doesn't it? And so whereas in verse 16, Paul sought to fortify our hope by drawing attention to who we are becoming presently, here now in verse 17, he'll do so by looking ahead to what we one day will be in Christ. And here's how he'll do so. He'll do so by comparing and contrasting the present sufferings of this world with the future glories of heaven. Sufferings that Paul has the audacity to label there in verse 17 as light and momentary, a trivial and fleeting, which once again an examination of Paul's life has us questioning like how can this man say that? Like, Paul, do you, do you need a reminder? Do you need a refresher of all that you have been through since that fateful day on the Damascus Road? And in fact, Paul needs no reminder. And church, this is made certain later on in the book as Paul gives us his laundry list of sufferings that he had endured for the sake of Christ. In fact, if you would just flip over with me to 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 24. 2 Corinthians 11 Verse 24, where Paul, in reflecting upon his life and reflecting upon his hardship, says this. He says, five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times, in verse 25, I was beaten with rods. 
Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea. Imagine that. He continues in verse 26, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, verse 27, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And here's how he'll finish his list in verse 28. And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, you just cannot make this stuff up. This was Paul's life. Paul had suffered and suffered and suffered for the cause of Christ. There were, there were beatings, there were stonings, there were lashes, there were shipwrecks, there were anxieties. Put simply, Paul had been through the ringer for Jesus. And yet it's this same man who in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 will take all of those sufferings, all of those trials, all of those earthly afflictions, put them in a heap, point his finger and say, light, momentary, insignificant. And friends, you've got to get this this morning. Please hear me when I say this. In doing so, Paul is in no way minimizing or underplaying the reality of suffering in this life. That's not what he's doing. This is not Paul, the wishful and unfounded optimist that we see so much of in our culture. No, that's not biblical. That's not what's happening here. But rather, a church, what, what Paul is saying and what the word of God would bring to bear upon our hearts this morning is this, that for the Christian even in our trial, in our valley, in our moment of brokenness, we can look at our earthly circumstances and say it is light, not because it's not real, not because it's not hard, not because it's not painful, but because what awaits us in Christ is so far superior that to try and compare the two would be foolishness and futile and a colossal waste of time. Oh, church, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you've shown up to church this morning to worship a God and open a Bible that says in Romans 8.18 that the sufferings of this present time, listen to this, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us, with the eternal weight of glory that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan, writing famously from the Bedford jail, took to composing a beautiful allegory on the Christian life. And in this story, the protagonist Christian, no doubt a symbolic representative of Bunyan himself, encounters much opposition and many trials throughout his pilgrim's progress. A Christian is seen as slugging through the swamp of despond. He's pictured as struggling up the hill of difficulty. He's uh, portrayed as stumbling across the valley of humiliation. And uh, of course, the overarching message is simple. Life as a Christian is hard. Amen? It's difficult. It's, it's messy. It's often full of misery. Such is the experience of the pilgrim. But church, in this amazing moment at several different points throughout the book, Christian, 
in the middle of his trial, in the middle of his despair, right when it looks like all hope is lost, when he has every reason to throw in the towel and lose hope forever, doesn't, and the question is why? Why? And the answer that Bunyan supplies all throughout the book is this. It was his confident expectation of what awaited him in the celestial city of the beauty and the joy and the glory soon to be revealed in the life to come and so it is here in second corinthians chapter four now before moving on from this point friends i would be remiss if i did not at least draw to our attention a particular truth in this verse that is quite frankly absolutely incredible And that truth, it's found really in a single word, and it's the word preparing. Do you see that there in your Bible? The text reads this way, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, perhaps you're reading out of a different translation this morning. Maybe your Bible translates that word not as preparing, but as producing or as working out. And in the end, the meaning is the same. This is a participle of cause and effect, a participle that communicates that what is being done, namely our suffering, is actually effective in producing this end good, which is our surpassingly great glorification. And now here's why that's such good news. Because friends, if indeed it is true, as the text says that it is, That all of our suffering is not detached nor devoid from the sovereign hand of God, but that rather he uses our suffering for a greater purpose in our lives, then here's what that now means. It means that my suffering and your suffering is not meaningless. And friends, I'm convinced that God brought some of you to church this morning to hear this singular truth from the word of God to hear and be reminded that what it is you are going through, call it cancer, call it the loss of a loved one, call it infertility, call it depression, abandonment, whatever it might be, that it is not meaningless. That it's not random, that it's not purposeless, but that it is doing something. And of course, this is the confidence that the Christian has that the world, quite frankly, knows nothing of. And that is the ability, even at the bottom of our despair, in the thick of our trial, in our most confusing and painful moments, to direct our eyes heavenward and say, God, in this suffering, you are at work for my good. I mean, church, can you imagine suffering apart from a biblical worldview? Can you imagine going through this life without any hope that behind that suffering lies a sovereign God and a loving Father? Let me just say this morning that you don't have to. Because instead, you, brother or sister, can say this morning with Paul in Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things, including your suffering, are working together for good. How exactly is this taking place? That I do not know. There's mystery here that is simply undeniable. But friends, what I do know is that one day, just like the teenage child and reflecting on his infancy, 
can look his parents in the eyes and say, thank you for that shot. Thank you for that pill. Thank you for that medicine, which in the moment seemed painful and scary and without reason, so too will we. In possession of a fuller and more enlightened mind, reflect upon our sufferings, reflect upon our trials, reflect upon our afflictions, only to turn those things back in praise to God in joyful recognition of their contribution to our eternal weight of glory. And so church, may we take heart and may we not lose hope as we remember our future glorification. Well, this brings us to our third and final ingredient and it's this, thirdly, my hope arises when I raise my eyes to the eternal. When I recognize my present transformation, when I remember my future glorification, and when I raise my eyes to the eternal, verse 18 reads this way. As we look, speaking of the believer, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Well, here now in verse 18, Paul introduces us to the role of the mind in the pursuit of hopefulness. And the command is as simple as it is difficult there in verse 18. And it is to look not or, or set our mind on the things that are seen, the things that are transient, but instead to look to those things that are unseen, that is eternal. And now I believe it's important for us to recognize and that the word used here in verse 18 for look, it's actually not the typical word that would be used for eyesight. It's a different word. And the word employed here by the Apostle Paul, it's, it's actually the Greek word whereby we get our English word to scope, as in to scope down a rifle. And now I know that there are some hunters in this room, perhaps potentially likely many hunters in this room. And so you men and you women know, quite frankly, far more than I do, uh, that often... The name of the game is a waiting game, is it not? And it's not uncommon, at least as I've been told, uh, to spend an entire afternoon, potentially an entire week, uh, waiting and watching for that animal, let's just call it a buck, to come out of hiding and into plain sight. And when it does, I would imagine that there would be an instant jolt of excitement, followed by a swift suppression of that excitement so as not to scare off the animal. And then an immediate scoping in on your target. And church, I think that all of us recognize this morning, regardless of our hunting experience, that in that moment, as you scope in on the buck, that there is a focus and an intentionality and an intensity that is different from your average distracted glance at your surroundings, yes? That this is a, a wholehearted look. It is a focused and concentrated gaze. Why? Well, because that thing, in this instance, the buck, is the complete and sole focus of your attention. And church, I draw that out for us this morning for this simple reason, because I think it brings helpful clarity to what it is Paul is calling us to, and it's this. He's saying, Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you want to live a life of hope in a hopeless and dark world, then here's what you must do. You must fix your sight and set your aim. And not on the things that are seen, the things that are temporary, the things that are transient, but on that which is 
eternal. And now maybe you ask, well, James, what are some of these seen things that Paul is warning us against? And I think it's this simple. I think it's the things of this world. And maybe it's materialism. That is the love of stuff or worldly possessions. And maybe it's, it's arrogance. That is the love of notoriety or public recognition. And maybe it's, it's lustfulness. That is the love of, of instant pleasure or, or sinful gratification. These things are seen. They are worldly. And they are not to be the meditation of your heart, believer. And why is that? Well, consider the Apostle John's answer in 1 John 2.17. Because the world, along with its desires, are passing away. And so it's the exact same reasoning used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4. Namely, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, why would we set our mind and make our focus that which we know will not last? It's transient. It is here today and gone tomorrow. It is a sinking ship headed straight for the bottom. And so Paul says, therefore, do not look to those things. Do not prioritize the fickle and the fleeting, but instead scope in on the unseen, on the eternal. And what is that eternal thing that is worthy of our constant meditation? Well, I'm just going to argue that it is God himself, that it is the Lord three in one. And I think that this answer is bolstered elsewhere in Scripture, specifically in Colossians chapter 3, where Paul tells us to set our minds on the things that are above. That is where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, friends, here's the command. Here is the key and the secret to hopefulness. It is in getting our eyes off of the world and in placing them day by day by day onto the Son, onto Christ. And church, as you well know, this is just so, so important. In fact, I'm more convinced than ever that the reason why so many of us are struggling and losing the battle for hopefulness is for the simple reason that our eyes are on all the wrong things. Hours spent watching the news days spent scrolling through Twitter, weeks and months and years spent thumbing through the newspaper, all the while with only an occasional glance every now and then to the word of God. And yet we wonder why we're so despondent and so discouraged with the state of the world, and it's because we are not seeing the world through a heavenly perspective. And so church family, I think I can stand upon the word of God this morning and proclaim to you that a life of hopefulness in a hopeless and fleeting world is only possible with an open Bible and a beheld Jesus. That's where hope comes from. That's where hope arises, not in mustering it up, not in smiling through the, t- the pain, but in looking to the beauty and the worth and the sovereignty of Jesus and then watching as that vision now transforms your heart and informs your hope. Amen? Amen. Friends, here we have three crucial ingredients to a hope-filled life in a hopeless and fleeting world. The recognition of our present transformation the remembrance of our future glorification and the raising of our eyes to the eternal. 
And if I could just conclude this morning, right where I began, Grace Church of the Valley, the world is dark and you know this. In the world, you will find hopelessness and despair. It is guaranteed for us. And yet in Christ, in the promises and the resources available to us in the Son, we may say with Paul, I will not lose heart. I will not grow weary. And it's not because things are not bad, humanly speaking, they are. And it's not because we're, we're immune to life in this fallen world, we aren't. No, but it's because we, brothers and sisters, have a sure hope and a joyful expectation of who and what awaits us in the sun.